Have you had a bad weather surprise? Have you experienced unexpected bad weather? You plan an important event, and meteorologists predicted fair, fair weather, and then suddenly a storm came up and ruined the event. Speaking of unexpected bad weather, look at this picture. This picture you are looking at is real. It's not a, a computer generated. Professional photographer named Colleen Niska was snapping photos of a Canadian couple's wedding at Saskatchewan when a tornado split the backdrop. And, but instead of relocating, the three moved even closer to take pictures for once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And when she posted it on her Facebook page, she received more than 21,000 likes and more than 1,500 shares, and she turned the bad weather into a best business marketing opportunity. Unfortunately, in today's story of David that we are going to look at, we will see a fatality. In today's story, we will see God not just rain, David's happy parade, but God actually trashed his holy procession. So with that, let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 to 18. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Usa and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. Ahio was walking in front of it, and David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with a castanet, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals, or timbrels. When they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Usa reached out, and took hold of the ark of God because oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down. He died there beside the ark of God. Then the David was angry because of the Lord's wrath has broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, the place is called Paris Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. Ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Today's story is not an easy story like that of David versus Goliath, where we saw David's courage, or story of David versus Saul, where we saw David's compassion for his enemy. Somebody in the early service said, today's story is not a, a message for the beginner, but it's a message for those who've been following God for a long time. This story confuses and intimidate people 
instead of comforting and inspiring them. So what's the main point? I really believe we need this story more than ever in our current Christian history in our day in America. So let me give you thesis of today's message. This is a, like a mathematical formula. So those of you like a math, you will, you will get this. Good motives plus bad method equals or always brings sad result. Okay? Good motive plus bad method equals sad or serious result. What happened in 2 Samuel chapter 6 shook David to the core, but taught him terrifying yet wonderful truth that Lord God is above and beyond human comprehension and control and evaluation. The most important thing about David's kingdom, the real king, is not David, but God. Amen? So, now, we will look at the today's story on three parts. First is a David's you know, desire, and second part is a Uzzah's uh, disrespect for God, and then third is the uh, God's disruption. So now let's look at the first part of the story, which is when and what David tried to do. And here we see David's desire, which is a good motive, and he had a holy intention to God. Verse 1, it said, today's story begins that David again brought the 30,000 older able young men from Israel. In Hebrew text, simply said, chosen men of Israel. That means this was a very important mission and national event where David wanted future leaders of his nation to know its significance. This is the largest number of soldiers David mobilized so far in the scripture. And what's the significance of today's event? David wanted to make Jerusalem his new capital, not just a city of God, but ultimately, not city of David, but ultimately city of God. You know, in previous chapter 5, we saw David becoming king of the entire nation of Israel. And then he conquered the impregnable fortress, Zion. And then he made Jerusalem the city of peace, his capital. And then he defeated his archenemy Philistines resoundingly, not just once, but twice. I bet his approval rating was the highest ever in Israel's history right now. But do you know, David was not satisfied. This was all but beginning. David's real intention was to bring the ark of God to his city and make his city, city of God. Amen? I don't know, what's your goal of your success? What's the intention of uh, your success in your career, in your study, or in whatever in your relationship? Is to bring glory to God. Now, in order to make it a city, city of God, David brought the ark of God. So what is the ark of God? If you look at the picture, the ark of God is a chest or a box, four feet in length and two feet in width and depth, overlaid with gold. 
The solid gold lid was called a mercy seat. There is some kind of a, a bird kind of a figure, the wings out. That's a cherubim, angel called cherubim, hovering on God's throne. And they are actually covering their face because God's glory is too shining. And they are creating this mercy seat for God to sit. So after delivering Israel from slavery and making covenant with them, God instructed the Israelites to make an ark and store three things, three items in that container. The first one is a part of a manna, uh, symbolizing God's physical provision for them for 40 years in wilderness. And then second one is a tablet of a Ten Commandments, God's moral precept or principle for them to abide in promised land. And the third and final one is Aaron's staff, which means God's spiritual leadership for them. And then, if you look at the Exodus chapter 25, 22, God said this, There cover the cover, uh, above the cover between the two cherubims that are over the Ark of Covenant, I will meet with you and give you all my commands for Israelite. God said, this is where I will meet you. So Ark of God was a place of intimacy between God and his people. This is a place where glory of God dwelt among them. And that's why the writer of today, 2 Samuel today gave a long description of Ark in the verse 2. If you go back to verse 2 and see, he said, Ark of God, which is called by name. What's the big deal about name? You know, knowing name of God is a great privilege because God directly revealed that to Moses and Israelite, the Yahweh, the name of a covenantal God. The name, and the name of a Lord Almighty literally means Lord of armies, God of armies, and which he enthroned between the cherubims on the ark. This description tried to convey, this is not just a, a religious item. The ark of God is the most holy, most important object in entire Old Testament. It is the ark of God which makes the temple of Jerusalem holy. Amen? If a Jerusalem temple were the nuclear plant, ark of God is a nuclear reactor. This is where God promised to meet and guide his people. By the way, Apostle John, beloved disciple of Jesus, got this, he, he, he took this message, this important Hebrew theology, into his Christology. And to John 1.14, he said, The word became a flesh dwelt among us, and we behold, and there was a glory and truth of God, and grace, of, grace and truth of God overflowed. You know, the word became a flesh, talking about incarnated Son of God, Jesus. And he said, dwelt among us is literally pitched a tent. He's talking about God's holy tabernacle, that he was saying that Jesus is a living ark of God for us. Now, if the Ark of God is so important, how come we have not heard about it for a long time? How come the Israelites did not take care of it until today? 
You know, we've been studying, those of you new to uh, our church, we've been studying Life of David this summer. Uh, actually started uh, last summer. And the second part of uh, Life of David, we call the Triumphs of King. And especially we are studying first 10 chapters of uh, Second Samuel. So now, let's recap the journey of the Ark of God quickly. If you look at the map, Oh, can you see? <laughs> okay. Far on the uh, um, uh, right north, there's a, a place called Silo or Silo. That's where the tabernacle was located. And the Israelites, when they fought against the uh, 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 Philistines, they took the Ark of God as a, their secret weapon. You know? It's like uh, you don't study for your final exam, but you pray hard and you bring the Bible and then... You think somehow Bible will make you pass the test, and uh, what happened? You flunked the test. That's what the, happened to Israelite. They not only lost the battle, they lost the Ark of God. And Philistines, they took the Ark to their main city, Aphek first. And then they took the Ark of God as a war spoil and much more like a prisoner of a war. So they took it to their uh, temple, Temple of Dagon, and display that, oh, our God, Philistine God, Dagon, is a greater than God of Israel. And then what happened? Next day, found the temple of the statue was fell, fell. And then, you know, they thought it was an accident. But the next day, they found, the following day, it was decapitated. Not only that, all of a sudden, all kind of a pestilence and havoc, COVID-19, or COVID-1900 broke out entire Philistine, and Philistines, they didn't, they didn't like the Ark of God. And so they've been kind of passing their Ark of God like an open nuclear reactor to each other. So all of a sudden, Ark of God was raiding the entire land of a Philistine. And then at the end, Philistine said, we need to send it back to Israel. This is not a POW. <laughs> we are the POW of this Ark. <laughs> we need to send it back. And so now read 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1. So the man of a curious Jerum literally means a man of a city of a forest. Did you know city of a forest? In Hebrew called the uh, curious Jerum. Came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer his son to guard the ark of the Lord. And there the ark of God remained a curious Jerum a long time. How long? For 20 years, 20 years. For 20 years, for about 30 chapters, the Ark of God was completely forgotten and neglected until today, when David decided to bring it up to Jerusalem. So why did David want Ark of God so badly? Some said it is for the political purpose, to unite his kingdom. Well, if that's the case, how come Saul didn't do that? You know, Saul is a consumer politician. We need to know the reason David wanted the Ark of God is that David is somebody who hungered for intimacy with God more than anything. If you look at the uh, Psalm 27:4, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I ask, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. This is a cry of David's heart. Not to just know God, not to just have a little 
data and knowledge about God, but to live intimately with God. This kind of relationship Paul talked about in which we cry, not just God, but Abba or Daddy Father. So Ark represented this kind of spiritual living reality of God. You know, it is a one thing to know some things about God. It's another thing that we are, we are living in their reality. And David, for him, God is more real than anything. For David, more than, you know, to, for, in order to make us Jerusalem a city of God or a city of peace, he knew Jerusalem has to be a sacred, holy city. He knows the true security of life comes from God's presence in my heart, in my life. So David hungered for God's presence. And David wants God's presence to be the center of his kingdom and center of his reign. That is a, you know, David's intention, good intention, good motives. Now let's look at what happened. That's the second part. We're looking at the bad method. Verse 3. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the two new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel, Israel were, all Israel means the entire 12 tribe, the United Nation of Israel was celebrating with all their might before the Lord with a castanet, harps, lyres, timbrels, and sistrums and cymbals. By the way, Utza means strong and Ahio means friendly. So their name seemed to so fitting to this occasion. Friendly leads this uh, holy procession and strong follow and support this holy procession. And then verse 6, when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. And therefore, God struck him down. He died there beside the ark of God. Now, let me go directly. What was the mistake or sin of Uzzah? Why was his act of saving the fall of an ark called the irreverent, irreverent. You know, according to uh, one commentator, you know, uh, Utsa probably, you know, when he saw that an ark of God was uh, falling from the cart and then he, he, saw, he, he reached out and then, you know, held it tight, he probably thought God was telling him from heaven, thank you, Utsa. For it was so close, you saved the day. That's what he thought. Why? For Uzzah, Ark of God, was nothing but an old dusty box, which he was so familiar with. Because he lived with that box for 20 years. It was very possible that today was not the first time that Uzzah actually touched the Ark. It is possible that he actually touched it before, especially when he dusted off that ark. Then why did God strike him down? Someone said Uzzah was dead before he touched the ark. He died spiritually the moment that he thought he could keep God safely in a box. Now, 
God interrupted the parade and wake up and they actually suspended the whole procession and through that he was waking up entire nation. Death of Uzza was God's warning to us, to our spiritual ignorance and assumption and neglect. Death of Uzza was a God's object lesson. I want to I say this very clearly. Uzza was not necessarily more irreverent than others. He was not necessarily evil or more sinful than you and I. I want that clear. Do you guys, it's like, Usa for me, it's like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Do you guys remember Acts chapter 5? There's a couple who lied about their offering to the first church. And for their lie, God, Holy Spirit, took their lives. I don't think they went to hell. God just took them home early. Because of their lie, their compromise, actually the, the spiritual condition of the first church. It was a God's unnecessary discipline. Death of Uzza was a God's object lesson to all of us, especially David and all pious, well-meaning, David-like people. This is a warning to pastor and house church pastors and church leaders who always have a good intention for God, but sometimes we assume about our method or implementations. We have to recognize because we have a good motive, don't assume that everything will be good. Method matters. Good intention does not mean any implementation is okay. Goodwill does not allow any way. Death of Usa is divine demonstration and deterrence against our presumption and blindsided modus operandi. So let me tell you what, what, you know, what did God, you know, actually God gave a two specific instructions regarding transporting this very holy and important object of Old Testament. According to uh, Exodus 25, 12 to 15, you can like, look at it later. Ark was uh, designed to be carried by human, not by animals. Not just any humans, but the priests. Not just any Levite priest, but the family of a Koha or a Kohathite. These were two specific commands to transport the Ark of God. And guess what? David was ignorant. And the sons of Abinadab, Uzza and Ahio, they also neglected. Next week, we will see David complying with these commands and correcting his mistake. Now, if God's commands were so specific and clear for them to recall right away later, why didn't Uzza and Ayo follow the bad method? Why did they transport it on a cart carried by oxen rather than carrying on their shoulders? All right, listen to me carefully. They were following method of a Philistines. They were following the example of a Philistines. If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 6, you know, Ark of God stayed in the land of a Philistine for seven months. And he created the havoc, I already told you. And the Philistines, 
They weren't sure whether it was a naturally caused, natural pandemic, or it was a really act of God. So guess what they decided to do? They decided to, when they decided to send back the ark to Israel, they put that in a cart carried by two brand new oxen, novice oxen never yoked before. And they said, if this oxen goes back to, they return to Israel directly, then we know it's a God of Israel who created the havoc. If, if he wanders, we know that was you know, just, just a coincidence. And lo and behold, these two oxen, without turning right and left, went straight back to Israel. And then Philistines learned that no one, no one can control Ark of God or God of Israel. What Uzzah and Ahio did was, today, was following same transportation method of a Philistine. And the, here is a biblical lesson for us, very important theological lesson. You know, God overlooks the ignorance of a pagans and unbelievers, but God does not overlook ignorance of his people, but hold them accountable. Let me illustrate this. Let me illustrate the God's patience with the ignorant pagans and God's seriousness with the ignorant followers of his. You know, when I was a child, uh, once I had a nagging eye irritation. And when I came to my mother for help, my mother tried several, you know, uh, uh, you know measures. At the end, she said, son, all right. The last, this last measure will be a little painful, but it will definitely eliminate your itching. And then guess what she did? She put a drop of a lemon juice on my eyes. Uh, do you know what's it like? It was a more than burning sensation. The pain is a deeply repressed in my subconscious. And... Uh, I think one of the theories that uh, I have that my mother thinks I'm her favorite child of three is because I did a lot of stupid things that my mother told me to do. I was so gullible to my mother, and she, you know, I just believed her, and she did this, this kind of things to me. And one time I told this story, and some ophthalmologists in the church came to me and said, Pastor Paul, that could have caused a permanent eye damage, and you could be blind. Now, what am I going to do, my mother? Sue her? She's ignorant. I have to overlook her ignorance. But if she were a doctor or ophthalmologist, I'm sure I'm going to report her because that kind of doctor shouldn't practice medicine, right? You know, ignorance of a pagans, God overlooked. But people who claim to be followers of God and receive God's holy revelation and holy scripture, are ignorant, lo and behold, God is not overlooking. God is not overlooking. Some people say ignorance is a police. Think again. Ignorance is a horrible when it comes to God's truth. If we neglect God's word and do not discern God's ways in life, we will offend God more than anybody. I want to take an application uh, out of this message here. Parents of a forest, 
I know you love your children. But I have to, and then this is the summer. So we go vacation. Absolutely fine. Absolutely. Go, whatever, good vacation. I believe in vacation. But don't skip the church on Sunday. Wherever you go to on Sunday, go nearby church to worship. Or worse come worse, turn on the TV and watch, you know, TV, you know, worship. Or these days, we have a Zoom. We have an early Zoom service. You don't have an excuse anymore, okay? I don't expect everybody that I know become a follower of Christ, but I expect all the children of a church to be a followers of Christ. Problem is the parents who don't take God seriously. Parents, if you take a God conveniently, let me tell you, your children will not take a God seriously. So, don't neglect God and worshiping God even in vacation. Now, let me bring quickly the conclusion and then application to all of us. So result was, Usa was killed, struck down by God. And verse 8, the serious result was a divine interruption. David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Usa, and to this day, the place called the Paris Usa. Do you remember in chapter 5 when God broke it out against the Philistine. David was so, you know, uh, encouraged by the victory. He called, uh, you know, Baal Perizim. You know, God broke, Lord broke out. This is a sad name, Paris Usa. God broke out against Usa. And David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was now willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedim Gittite for three months, and Lord blessed him, his entire household. That David was angry and was afraid of the Lord was an understatement. His life dream to make God the center of his kingdom was completely crushed by none other than God himself. I bet David was confused with the disappointment and even bewilderment. And then at the end, David did what Saul and Israelite did earlier. He ditched the ark of God, parked the ark of God at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Who is Obed-Edom? It's a very interesting name. The name Obed-Edom Gittite is not the name of Israelite. He is a probably Philistine because a Gittite means a people from Gath. And who is a famous warrior from Gath? Goliath. The first chronicle, chapter 25, said, In another battle with a Philistine, Elhanan, son of Jair, killed Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite. Did you know Goliath is a brother? His name is Lami. But Goliath was called the Gittite because he's from the city of Gath. So this, this Obed-Edom was a Philistine, who joined the Israelite, and he was an alien in Israel. And today, David sent the Ark of God to this uh, alien Israel, I mean Philistine, who is living amongst the Israelite. Funny thing in this story, I mean ironic thing is that, uh, you know, God once again blessed 
God showed that ark of God was not a problem, but presence of God actually means a prosperity. By blessing Obed-Edom and his entire household, according to Jewish tradition, the blessing that Obed-Edom received was that his wife, and he has eight sons, and his old sons has a wife, so eight daughter-in-laws. In next three months, they all gave up a birth of a sexplet. Six twins. All right, I know some of you don't think that as a blessing, but uh, back then is a unclear, I mean, definitely, you know, unambiguous, massive blessing from heaven. Every one of, every one of that household received a six, I mean, sex tuplet, sex tuplet. Later, you know, the Obed Adam, the Gittite's name was included uh, in the genealogy of a Korahite, those who the Levite who supposed to carry. So, you know, Bible, don't, if you read it carefully, there is a, this a divide between Israel versus a Philistine or Canaanite. It's not, it's not that clear. It's a blurry. There's a lot of faith interaction. You know, there are a lot of godly, pagan, righteous, you know, Gentiles, you know, in story of Old Testament. Now, so ending of the story once again tells us that God is not the problem. The problem is our understanding. And our presumptuous undertaking of God is a problem. Especially when we try to do something for God with a good intention. This story tells us to be extremely careful about our method. Good work of God always entails God's way. God's way. Godly motive must accompany with a godly method and the ignorance, spiritual ignorance, is something to, we need to watch out. Martin Luther King Jr. once said this, nothing in, the, all the, nothing in all the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and the conscientious stupidity. And Blazer Pascal, the French you know, thinker and, you know, Philosopher, he said this, man blaspheme what they do not know. You know, our ignorance of God offends God so much. Now, for the conclusion of today's message, I want to share something very critical and very relevant and very challenging in our time. That is how we Christians should respond to culture war in our history, in our country. You know, last Sunday, I talked about the critical race theory. And I said very clearly, the critical race theory can be instrumental and positive and meaningful if we use it carefully to critique the structural evil and institutional sin in our society. Because it is not a Christian idea, that doesn't mean it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a absolute, it's a entirely false. Anything true is God's true. You know, there are a lot of non-Christian idea or neutral idea which is true, we use. When it comes to science, there's no such a thing as a Christian and non-Christian. Science is a science. Truth is a truth. You know, along with the critical race theory, I want us to know clearly how to discern so-called uh, Christian call for culture war. 
We've been engaged in culture war in America last 50 years, last, you know, uh, last 40 years, starting in the 80s. The really well-meaning Christian leaders, they took us in the wrong direction. They said the, uh, these are traditional family values. That's the Christian values. And all those liberal progressive values, that is anti-Christian values. And we need to battle them out. Now, let me read a, a, quote, from a, a quote from a book called, uh, written by Michael Horton. He is a professor of systematic theology and uh, apologetics at Westminster Seminary. It's a book titled, The Beyond the Culture War. And the subtitle is, Is America Mission Field or Battlefield? Okay? And listen to me carefully. He was saying, not, do not get involved in the worldly dispute or public you know, discussion of a faith, but he was basically saying church shouldn't lose a focus from Christ to politics or any secondary issues. And this is what he said. Modern, Christian, modern Christendom's fascination with the politics, public morality, pop psychology, and marketing secular method comes at the expense of orthodoxy, spirituality, and our witness. Church needs to return to the gospel and doctrine to deal with our own sins first, and to look at the church before we condemn the culture. Church is no longer pursuing its authentic mission, generally speaking. And the ministers are supposed to ring the bell when that happens. So, that's why he wrote the book, and that's why I'm ringing the bell. That's my job. Anytime I feel that we are compromising gospel, that the New Testament teaches an early Christian's practice, I'm going to ring the bell. This is a one of my alarm sound. And I want to say very clearly, Christian call for the culture war is distraction from the gospel call. Now, let me continue. Politically, we have become one more minority group demanding its right in our culture war. Spiritually, we made it clear that we do not stand in the tradition founded by our Lord, the friend of sinners. Culturally, our hostile rhetoric has brought us to the point that our involvement is purely negative. Last statement. Theology. By that, he's talking about the gospel. Non-morality is a first business on the church's agenda of a reform. And the church, not the society, is a first target of a divine criticism. He's absolutely right. Bible said, when God judges, God will judge, God's judgment will start with his household. We will be the first one to be judged because we received God's truth and the wisdom more than anybody. And I know I'll be the first one to be judged because I'm a preacher of the gospel. So for that day, I'm, I'm speaking out to you clearly. We're in the wrong war. Culture war is not a Christian war. It's a, political, it's a political war. You know, Michael Horton, guess when he wrote this book? Beyond the you know, culture war. Amazing thing. Everything he says sounds so, so, so kind of a contemporary, right? That book was written 1994, 26 years ago. And look at our, you know, um, our, our, our country right now. Our public 
Well, it's a more exacerbated and worsened off than 26 years ago. Situation is far worse. You know, problem with a culture war approach. It's not that we are not discerning the opposition from the world. The problem is our chosen mode of response. You know, when we take this, uh, uh, embracing this uh, cultural paradigm, many Christians unknowingly take this a uh, very competitive mode. It's like uh, all is fair in love and war perspective. You know, after all, after all, you know, war, you don't turn the other cheek. You strike back as a hard or harder than your opponent. That's how the wars are won. So question we must ask is this, is a warlike posture, is a proper response to increasingly becoming anti-Christian society. Thus, such an approach represents wisdom that comes from above or wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. I'm quoting the James chapter 3. You know, James chapter 3, there are three, two kinds of wisdom. Wisdom from above, wisdom from earth, below, the world. We should not fight a cultural war with the competitiveness of a so-called religious right or political right or the conservative. I'm not saying join the liberals either. The question is, are we engaging with the culture and the world with the right spirit? In the words of a great American pastor, Jonathan Edward, question is, do we engage one who opposes us without angry reflection or contemptuous language as seeking his good rather than his hurt? Are we trying to beat them in their, in more in argument, more than winning their soul and winning their heart? Let me read one more quote. To engage with our culture in a militant and hostile manner is to forsake our role as ambassadors of God. It is a trading our diplomatic visas for military dog tags. It is trading the armor of God for the fig leaves of a human striving. It is a capitulation to earthly wisdom, attempting to fight for the kingdom of God on the world's term. So let me make it very clear. Those of us who thought it is a Christian duty to engage in a cultural war from conservative right-wing perspective, let me tell you once again, Bible totally doesn't go with that. New Testament does not call us to change the world with a legislation, but with a life of sacrifice and service. You know, early Christians, do you know how they turned the world upside down? They didn't change the law. They just became a virtuous, loving people. What is a glorious name the New Testament Christians, early Christians called each other? They call Catholics. What's the name Catholic means? It's a Greek word. It's a made-up word. Kata, holon, Catholics together. Kata, according to. Holon, whole, according to whole. Catholic means universal human beings. 
Christians call themselves universal human beings because our God is a God of everybody. Not just the right, the, the conservative people or certain kind of people. God is for everybody. God did not spare his son for, for everybody. I mean, for, for anybody. Early Christians, they pray for Roman government and emperors. Not to, you know, make a Christian legislation, but to just create this uh, common space for common good and safety so that everyone can share the God, they can share the gospel, and everyone can make a free choice about God. That's it. So our public realm, our call to influence the public realm is to create a safe, common space for everybody. Christians, we have a specific name for that. Common grace of God. God gives us sunshine and rain to the wicked and righteous, wicked and unrighteous as much as a righteous and faithful. That is a common grace. There are some Christians who think that legislating Christian morality is a work of God. You are copying out New Testament call. New Testament called us God's children, children of our light and salt of the earth. By welcoming everyone, regardless of their background, even when they sin, even they are horrible sinners, we are continuing tradition of Christ, the friend of sinners. And here is the key. We are not compromising social justice or truth of God. The most important thing about transformation society who is an individual, individual transformation. That it ultimately will bring out the genuine peacemaking tra transition. If you impose a Christian values by law, by force, you are denying God's grace for all. I said before, first Christian emperor Constantine tried to make Christianity as the only official religion in Rome, and church father Actentius, he said, that's not will of God. Will of God is to simply give everybody choice to believe in God. And with that, we will preach the gospel. We have a many well-meaning well Christians who totally kind of confused about making America a Christian nation. You know, some people engaged in the Christian culture war, they saying, we are wrestling with the soul of nation. You know what, before we worry about soul of nation, we need to worry about soul of our church. You might sound a radical, but let me tell you this, or in the extreme, extreme point. Nothing wrong, nothing unethical, Christian-wise, about voting for some politician who is a pro-choice. You think of being a Christian is you have to always vote for the pro-life people? Let me tell you. Pro-choice is no problem with the Christian ethics. You know why? Government is not telling you to kill the baby. The pro-choice simply say, you may abort your baby or kill your baby, whatever reason. As long as we don't kill baby, who cares? That's better than, you know, government tell me what to do, what not to do. We believe the sanctity of every human being. I'm a pro-life, more than anything else. But at the same time, 
I'm a pro-choice, politically. And uh, along with that, I want to say this. The role of the church is not imposing, enforcing be Christian you know, values through the secular you know, power. Role of the church is a being a people of God who loved all and sacrificed for anybody. You know, Europe, if you look at the history of Europe, Europe was the first Christian continent, and they showed us. They had all the Christian legislation one time, and what happened? Did they become more Christian? No. Even if we legislate all the biblical values into the law, that doesn't make our country Christian. St. Augustine, in his book, City of God, he said, people of the city of God and city of world, we are co-mingling in this time. And we need to exist peacefully. And the, our ultimate victory doesn't come from Washington, D.C. It comes from Christ and his return. Until then, we love everybody, regardless of whatever you know, identity they have. Whenever I hear the LGBTQ issue is a dividing church, it breaks my heart. God calls us to love all. Romans 5, 7, 5, 8 is clear. While we were yet sinners, Christ died to demonstrate God's love. Dear Forrest, why are you and I involved in the house church ministry? To welcome everybody, regardless of their condition. We welcome them. And we really encourage them to know the heart of God in Jesus Christ. And once they know the heart of God, guess what? All those man-made oppositions and the secular values will be melted by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? You know, the guy that you're looking at, your pastor, I'm not like a, I didn't become a, this kind of a big-hearted humanist or, you know, whatever, the, the, you know, the universal, you know, humanist or Catholic. You don't know how narrow I was, how opinionated, how peculiar and how, you know, picky and how racist I was. But you know what? The Christ in me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, doesn't rest until I welcome everyone as a Christ welcome us. Dear Forrest, we are not engaged in culture war. We don't find that as a Christian cause. Our cause is a Christ kingdom to save a lost soul and then really work together to save more lost souls in this world. Amen. Let's pray.